Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. For more than 100 years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. And for the next century, South Dakota is focused on making pheasant hunting even greater. Welcoming more hunters to the field, showing the hunting community is for everyone. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's huntthegreatestsd.com. South Dakota, sportswomen, welcome. Welcome to another episode of Woods and Waters Project Podcast. I'm your host, Steph. Thank you so much for being here. We have a great episode today, especially if you live in the beautiful, wonderful state of Iowa, my home, my home state. Today we are interviewing Jamie Cook, who is with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, and he is the Hunter Education Coordinator. Whew, mouthful. Uh, and I have known Jamie for multiple years, and um, he has become a good friend and partner and someone to lean on, uh, bounce ideas off of, and him along with so many others uh, with the Iowa DNR are amazing. We are so lucky in this state to have these uh, folks as partners and to get our youth and adults educated and giving them opportunities to learn to hunt and get outdoors. Seriously, there's so much going on in Iowa and it continues to grow. And Jamie and I talk about that. Opportunities for you to look into, to learn different things, meet different people, get involved, always looking for mentors. We talk about what hunting numbers look like right now, the importance of recruiting people, retaining them, and, and, and passing it on. So we get into all of those in this episode. 
And we get to hear about Jamie's story. He's a Kentucky boy who's now moved to Iowa. Sounds like he's going to be in Iowa for quite a while. <laughs> uh, and we get to hear all about that. So I am so glad you're here. Let's get into it. about it off and on for like probably a year i think oh yeah Maybe it's like the best of intentions just never nailed it down so yeah. i'm glad we're here yeah me too and i mean i don't know exactly what direction this interview is going to go but just because now you know i've known you or have worked with you in some capacity multiple times throughout the last few years I feel like we have more stories to tell and more to talk about anyway oh yeah for sure (laughs) absolutely so I think the timing is uh what it needed to be really oh yeah and you know I'm not scared of impromptu stuff either so good deal (laughs) yeah I can roll with this good um well Jamie uh could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do. Oh man. And you can, um, you can start from the beginning. <laughs> well, in, in the summer of 1979, my mom <laughs> and dad went on a date. I'm just kidding. We won't go that far back. Um, no, uh, Jamie cook. Um, I serve as the hunter education coordinator, uh, for the Iowa department of natural resources. Um, Prior to this role, I was a state coordinator with Pheasants Forever here in Iowa. Um, Got uh, an opportunity for about four years to um, work with some really talented farm bill biologists uh, that uh, work across the state, helping landowners make land management decisions, um, putting wildlife habitat on the ground, um, helping protect soil and water quality. Uh, Just a really amazing program really amazing staff i miss i miss those guys and gals very much but uh, i'm just super excited to be part of the iowa dnr and their team and family there again super passionate people accomplishing the same goals um and then prior to that my life before i'm a, a native of kentucky 
and uh, worked there for 10 years um, for the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources um, as a naturalist and conservation educator first, and then uh, and then transitioned into hunter ed and hunter recruitment uh, about halfway through my time there. So um, I was just thinking last night, Steph, um, I think 2022 in the fall will be the completion of my 10th year in some shape or form in hunter ed or r3 which is kind of crazy to think about yeah that's crazy mm-hmm. that is how long have you been in iowa though four years four years yeah. okay yep yeah. yeah came out in october sorry august of 2017 i gotcha so, yeah i've been here four years wow that's awesome so you were and so you were in some capacity in that as well in kentucky um for the six years leading up to it right yeah mm-hmm. cool yeah i was um yeah i'm in a i was in a very similar role as that what i'm doing now for the dnr awesome. state government and everything so yeah that's awesome when yeah. growing up in kentucky uh so i i would think someone and i you know i kind of know the answers because i've known you for a few years sort of but <laughs> I would think someone who is in the role that you're in as a hunter education mm-hmm. coordinator would definitely have to have some like love and passion for hunting in the outdoors. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, not assuming that you grew up doing that your whole life, but what was that like back in Kentucky? Is that something you grew oh. up doing or? Uh, no. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, it's funny. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, so growing up, you know, my mom kicked us outside. We lived in town, so, you know, she'd get home from work and she'd kick us outside to make us play in the yard or whatever. And I, I remember there was there's this uh, little ditch right there next to the house. And this uh, sumac would grow. And I don't know if you know what sumac is, but it's a mm-hmm. skinny little tree branch that grows in ditches and on hillsides really well. Um, but I remember I'd take a bow saw and and cut this stuff up and, and I, I would make I would make a bow out of it um the arrows were terrible we were super flimsy <laughs> but anyway um you know just we were outside we had this little wood lot too next to the house my friends would go up and play in we had no idea whose property it was we played in it anyway um and uh it, it was just important to be outside and then I guess one of the big changers for me that really kind of drove me towards this field was you know I was involved in boy scouts um you know, soil and water merit badge, fish and wildlife merit badge, um, archery, you know, just being outside camping um, and, and really kind of, I guess, pump the, the stewardship aspect <laughs> into me more than anything, right? Yeah. So, and you got to think too, in the early 90s, schools were also pumping, um, you know, recycling and environmental causes, and that was really a big thing. And so I just knew I wanted to do something outside. And uh, I went through scouts, played football in high school, and, and got close to graduating high school. And I came home one day from football practice, I guess, and my dad is in the backyard um, in our little subdivision um, in our, you know, enclosed backyard with a privacy fence. And he's shooting, shooting a compound bow that he's intending to begin to hunt with. And my deer, my dad deer hunted like in the 80s, back when there were no deer. And, <laughs> He had all kinds of crazy stories, but, you know, just historically, you go back to the 90s, and hunting was almost at its most popular 
levels in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and you had people just getting into it left and right. And um, my dad was one of those. And so he, he and some of his friends got into bow hunting. And I remember sitting there in the backyard thinking, I want a bow, right? I mean, why wouldn't I? Um, a few weeks later, my uncle showed up and, and gave me a bow that he had. And, and this, again, there was no fitting to it. It was just like, Hey, here's a bow. And you kind of just learned to shoot. Right. Um, and the goal was to try to be able to hit most of the arrows in the size of a plate from, from 30 yards. And so anyway, long story short, I did hunt a little bit, um, post high school and into college on a, on a farm that my cousin operated um, but it was it, it was I'm going to say it wasn't a quality mentored experience it was uh, go sit in this tree stand and good luck really is what it was <laughs> um, I had no idea what wind was doing there was no consideration at least from my vantage point now that may have all been thought through by my uncle and other people but um it was literally like, here, go sit in a tree stand and hopefully one comes by and you can shoot. Oh, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, it just, it, and, and, you know, I didn't stick with it much through college. And when I got into college, I decided to go into wildlife management, mostly because I loved the idea of working with hunters, uh, being a hunter myself. And just if I was going to do something in the outdoors, I wanted to do something like that. And, um, Anyway, uh, that, that's kind of my background. I, I didn't, I didn't grow up hunting. Um, I had, and when, when I say hunting in college, maybe five or six trips. So it's, it's very limited. And um, started a family. Um, got uh, got hired by the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife as a naturalist. Um, worked at a, a conservation education center, um, doing school programs with kids and adults, and really enjoyed that. And then. As that began to fade in, the, the drive, the ambition, the, the will to learn to hunt was always still there. Um, and then I just kind of got ready for a change. You know how we get seasons in life. And I had a conversation with our division director at the time and just told him that, you know, I was ready for a change. And if anything come up, you know, let me know. And there was an opening in Hunter Ed and um, it was a new position. It was going to be in charge of mentored hunts and r3 and trying to get more people involved in the outdoors and uh also some hunter ed admin so it was uh it's pretty cool yeah so i got that job and that really what set me off kind of kind of crazy that's oh oh no hold on can you hear me Mm-hmm. yep yep sorry <laughs> You're good. You missed all that, right? No, didn't I didn't miss. It? Nope, I didn't. I got all of that. Oh my gosh, okay, I'd be good. so sad if I missed that. <laughs> I I've only had that happen one time on a podcast, and I where I recorded this awesome episode, and it like the recorder just like glitched out at the very end and didn't save oh, yeah. anything. That's uh, rough. And we redid the interview. Yeah. And the interview was great, but I mean, the first one was so, was so good because so much yeah. of it was like organic, you know, like yeah, things I, I genuinely didn't know about the person. So, mm -hmm. um, 
wasn't the same. It was a good episode regardless, but oh my gosh, it made me sick to my stomach. But (laughs) no, I think that's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing all of that because, um, I think because even though I grew up hunting from like a really, really young age, Mm -hmm. um, there are more, there are that that's like such a broad statement because like things like I was telling you this morning, I was checking traps this morning. I didn't grow up trapping. Um, I just started doing that in the last like year and a half. Um, I didn't grow up. There's certain types of hunting and fishing. I never did. So, um, I feel now that I've like gotten into it and starting those things later in life, you, I could say, I guess, I don't know. Um, that's all really relative. Like I can still, I feel like I can very much see from like the lens of someone who's done it forever, but also someone who just like has the, the wonder and like excitement and, um, like, you know what I mean? Like from, mm-hmm. so, cause there's just so many things I'm still learning all the time. And from knowing, oh, yeah. knowing you, you know, I've known, knowing you and working with you the last few years, like it, it, it's easy, like, no matter what type of hunting or, you know, outdoor thing we're talking about, it's really easy to see that you really care and you have that, like, childlike wonder about stuff, even when it's the things you've been doing oh, for man. a really long time. Yeah. Um, well, I also get the childlike frustration, too. <laughs> the temper tantrums and uh, the fits when things don't go my way. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, I know that. That's, that's cool. I mean, yeah, yeah I was... 33 i think when i um harvested my first deer and uh ironically it was a twofer um you know the rifle season in kentucky is set up during rut which uh, archery has the the rain out here for for rut um in iowa um but we you know i I was hunting this place and and basically I, i shot a doe and she happened to be with a buck who was pursuing her um and my tag was good for an antlered and an antlerless. And so um, this really big bodied nubby looking spike was the buck. And, and uh, I remember the landowner telling me that if I see him to go ahead and shoot him because he's been around a while and you know, whatever. So there he was. And uh, I shot the first doe and he, he just stood there and stared at me. Oh, like, and you know, instinctively, you know what I did Steph? This is so funny. I, I look back and can't believe I did this. I actually tried shooing the deer away the second deer and again my tag is perfectly good for two deer i could totally shoot shoot this deer and he's you know he's like at 20 yards and i've got i've got a 270 in the woods i mean i it would have been an easy shot anyway i shoot this deer and it runs off but then it stops like 80 yards away and so i'm like oh yeah and while he's running i have that realization that i can shoot that deer (laughs) so i shot I shot again and, uh, we, you know, we had handheld radios there cause we, you could use those in Kentucky and, uh, the guy radioed me and, uh, said, Hey, or I radioed him and did you get one? I said, yeah. He goes, did you miss? I heard two shots. I said, no, I got, I got two deer. <laughs> and so he showed up down there and, uh, that's when I realized how much work goes into hunting or, you know, harvesting a deer afterwards but anyway yeah uh about three days later everything was processed and in my fridge at home and i'd done it all myself which was uh, you know a huge a huge benefit but 
anyway, yeah, I'm, I love it. And, you know, and I think sometimes it's hard. One thing you said a minute ago about how people transition and, you know, you grew up hunting, but then you get into new things. One thing we teach in Hunter Ed that sometimes I forget about and, and neglect, I guess, is the fact that we do go through stages of hunter development. We, we, we teach that in Hunter Ed and, you know, you have this, you know, at the climax, you have this sportsman stage, which is where, you know, you're, you're in it to bring others into the, into the tradition or, you know, the pursuit of the outdoors. Um, you're, you're in it to get them into hunting. You're about conservation and, you know, there's no other motivation for you other than the purpose of conservation and bringing other people into it. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so for me, for probably the longest time, I'm, I'm just going to say it probably till this season. Right. So I've been hunting since I was 33. I'm 42. So up until this season, I've always been like a limiter out. Like if I don't get my limit, I'm going to be mad. And if I don't, if I don't kill something and bring it home to put in my freezer, I'm going to be upset. I'm going to, and I was talking about being childish, a powder, you know, my deer seasons in Iowa have not been productive. I have yet to kill a deer in Iowa, but, um, and, and then what changed this year? And this is what's crazy. I've really transitioned from this avid deer hunter in Kentucky. to now I just, I love to pheasant hunt. You walk, uh, you don't have to be out there at, oh, dark 30. Um, you know, it's, it's business hours for the pheasants, eight to four thirty here in Iowa. So I can live with that and it's easy. And I think what, what made the big change this year for me is that I've got a pup and, and now I'm fully capable of going whenever I want pheasant hunting instead of being dependent on someone else. And so, man, this year <laughs> I have not shot a single bird and I've been out probably 10 times with my dog and she's, she's flushed a couple of roosters and I've had friends that have taken a shot. Um, and one guy, you know, shot a rooster last week with me, um, over at Neil Smith, which was great. But I, I guess my point in all this is, yeah, we're, we're passionate. We love doing it. I got into it at a, an older age, but we, we do go through stages and it'll be interesting to see where we go. Um, you know, where we go in the future with this for me personally. And then as my kids get older, I'm already thinking about, you know, next season with my kids and what I want to try to accomplish. So it's just cool how it changes. And, you know, here we teach this in Hunter Ed. Who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. I, I, didn't, I don't think I realized, like, how much you talked about the stages in Hunter's Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's awesome. And I, I wonder, I think that's going to be one of those things that, especially for kids, um, it'll come like full circle. Cause like, as you're, te- I imagine like, as you tell them this when they're younger, it kind of like they're listening, but maybe just can't relate to what you're saying. And then like, it's going to be one of those things they look back on. They're like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. You yeah. know, because it, it's kind of hard to, um, relate to if you haven't you know gone through that like the whole time you're talking I'm just like nodding and like thinking because this this deer season it's it's not over so I'm not saying I've like given up but (laughs) the last couple of years I have really really enjoyed goose hunting and I have really really enjoyed pheasant hunting and now that we also have a pup um it's like Sometimes if I have a choice to go deer hunting or like go work with my pup on some birds, 
or go goose hunting, I might choose bird hunting over deer hunting, which is so bizarre to me because I, you know, with like the archery and, and the bow hunting, I love it. Um, I, I, I just some, for some reason, I didn't realize that I would gravitate so much towards bird hunting. Um, I really enjoy it. <laughs> and that yeah. like, that kind of surprises me because like growing <laughs> up, I, I just being from Iowa, being a bow person, mm-hmm. being someone who grew up doing it. And like, my dad has like one fit a multiple 150s plus on his wall like i just felt like i was supposed to love deer hunting um or like favor it because i do Mm -hmm. love it i I do very much love it uh but i don't know if it's my favorite (laughs) you know yeah i mean and i think that's what makes this journey so grand is that um you know you can you can kind of sample things Mm -hmm. and that's usually what i tell new hunters is that you know, obviously turkey and deer are the most pursued game species in, in North America. Um, and so there's always emphasis on those, but, you know, I, I think just get into it and, and learning the basics of scouting, whatever you're scouting, learning the basics of firearm safety in the field, um, you know, cause those apply across whatever species you're hunting. And so I, I think as you, I think as you get it, like, like for me, I started with deer. I, I got to where I was confident and comfortable with deer and then moved out here. I didn't know how to spell the word pheasant, let alone hunt them. And so, <laughs> you know, I had, I, I, but I was super excited, you know, and I was part of this great organization that it was its flagship species and, and uh, just learning about it. And, 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 you know, even this year, I plan on doing a whole lot more homework on, you know, reading a good field and, and how exactly do you, you know, cause these, what I keep hearing is that these birds right now have got the track shoes on. So what does that mean when you're a hunter say that roosters got on their track shoes and, and running, and then what's the hunting strategy there? Because if it's just me and one dog, that's one thing, but when it's me and four others and two or three dogs, it's a game changer. Right. But anyway, just, there's always something to learn. I guess that's my advice for any new hunter is, you know, get into something, focus on it, feel comfortable with it. And then when you're ready to take up something else, go for it. And if that happens all at the same time, that's how you'll figure out what you really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'm so glad you said that because I was thinking that one of like my hardest, most difficult hurdles, even though it's like a great thing is just like my passion and excitement for so many things. Um, I'm not like, I'm never bored, (laughs) never, ever. Um, and, but with that lately, you know, I have to pick and choose things like anybody Mm -hmm. and that's really hard for me. But what I was thinking about, as you were saying that with like goose hunting, for example, and pheasant hunting, okay, well, pheasant hunting, it's causing me to slow down and get better at it because I have a pup now. I need to think about how to make him successful mm-hmm. and how to work with him so we can both be successful. And really been thinking about the next the next puppy we'll get because we'll get a puppy probably in a few months again. Mm-hmm. Um, and like what breeds, you know, we want to have with our Brittany and, um, you know, some of the stuff I want to be better at, at training and then goose hunting. Like I've been working on calling and. Mm-hmm. I think I'm just becoming more obsessed with those things because like there's so much more I need to get better at with those. Um, oh yeah. yeah. You know, I just, 
scouting i love scouting i like scouting for just about anything um mm-hmm. i if i honestly could just like sometimes scout for other people um well you, you can come down here and <laughs> scout anytime you want to you know. <laughs> i was just about to say that's one of my that's one of my hang-ups is you know being a, a family guy and three girls and, and a wife and activities with them i, I don't think well, I do think like oh, I need to go scout or I need to go do this. And I think, you know, one thing I'm hoping to do in 2022 a little better is, is to make, make more use of like the early spring scouting for deer rather than wait until late summer. Um, and so like in March, when people are thinking about shed hunting, you know, getting out and doing some scouting then and, and bringing the kids along for that, because yeah. my girls, they, we could go to a city park and they'll pick up every acorn or nut and bring it back to the house and they won't tell us. And we open the van door and it's like, where's all these rocks and nuts and feathers? Coming from? <laughs> but, but if Aww. you say, Hey, let's go for a hike. They're like, Oh, I don't want to go for a hike. I'm like, okay, I'm just, just going to quit telling you. I'm just going to say, get in the van. We're going to go. <laughs> Cause once you're, once you're there and you're outside, they, they, they never complain about it then yeah yep so yeah it is yeah like my my wife took our girls on a walk here uh, one of the local parks opened up a new trail and it's like a three mile loop and my, my wife didn't realize that till they were about halfway through and at that point you know you might as well finish it yeah but my middle my my middle kid cora she's eight and she's like maybe maybe 50 pounds soaking wet like she's just a <laughs> little feather light and she picked up this, this, what my wife thought was a piece of wood that was shaped like an old um, Civil War pistol. Like it had a curved, I mean, it was a really cool looking thing. And my wife thought it was a stick. They got back to the van. It was like a three pound rock that my eight year old <laughs> had carried around the majority of the hike <laughs> because she thought it was cool. Aww. And that's just, you know, so I, I guess I'm bringing my kids into this because, you know, my strategy for scouting is going to change. Cause I know I need to do that better. So anytime you want to come down and scout for me, you know, we'd put you and you and your crew up anytime. Yeah, no, for sure. I, uh, well, a couple of things. One, I think with like, with your job, with, you know, with, with my job, um, mm-hmm. uh, with what we like to do outside of just like, I guess our, just our job, our normal lives, like just general advice. Like I don't, you know, I don't have kiddos yet. And I think about that sometimes, like, what's that going to look like integrating them into this world? Because that would be really important to me. One, so I can still do the things that I love to do and not lose myself. But also, like, I want them to be, like, surrounded by that and have that mm-hmm. be a norm. You know, whether they hunt or not, that that doesn't matter to me. But, like, um, that they have an appreciation for it, respect mm-hmm. and understanding. They ask questions. They they look yeah. around at nature. They look at those rocks and those sticks. And, you know, like, I think that's so cool. Um, and so I think that's a – however you can integrate your kids or if you need to integrate your kids so you can make it work for you, I mean, that's yeah. – you know, I think that's super important. Um, yeah. Because that's a barrier for a lot of people or, like, a perceived barrier is, you know, having kiddos like, oh, I just don't have – the time or resources or, um, you know, so Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely stuff. Yeah. I think that's because, you know, you and I have partnered together on some adult classes and then, um, we're partnering now too on, you know, kids, um, getting kids out hunting and, you know, it's interesting 
that I just like sit back and observe a lot um, between the, the between the adults and the kid cl- and the kid classes and or hunts or you know whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure, but it, it's kind of like an overall feeling like when we have youth hunts um, and kids back out or like there's a bunch of interest, but then like no one commits to it. I mean, I think there's a few things there. One's like I one, I think people are just really busy and have overcommitted themselves to a lot of things, which I, I'm guilty of, too. Uh and kids are in so many sports. They're in so many different. They have so many opportunities to do a lot of really cool things, which is great. Um, but I, I, f- I assume that hunting sometimes takes a back seat. Like if this is like maybe a kid's first hunt or they've been out a couple times, they're registered for a hunt. Sometimes I think they get pulled out of it um, because mom and dad maybe don't have a buy-in to it yet. So it's kind of a afterthought. Does that make sense? I'm trying to say it like correctly and be um, like sensitive to it because there's not like this is, this is just a really broad general statement. Like this is not one size fits all at all. Um, but do you know what do you know what I'm saying? Like if mom and if mom and dad don't have an understanding and appreciation for it, um, kiddos probably not going to go very much. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. I and, mean. And yeah, if you're, yeah. you're spot on stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's hard because I think there's multiple generations where hunting, um, as a whole, just again, broad statement kind of got, you know, glossed over, skipped over a little bit. So mm-hmm. there's kind of that battle of, I think there's a lot of parents, they'd be between our ages, you know, like I'm 30. So you're like in your early forties. So like right between our ages, I feel, um, is the is people who are really open-minded who Mm -hmm. who want to have their kids outdoors but they don't necessarily know enough to feel confident in letting their kids go off with a stranger to hunt you know yeah absolutely um absolutely and you know i I, yeah this is a this is a great point and you know i think a couple of things i want to i want to come back to the parent thing you know but i'm sure you probably have listeners that aren't parents or uh you know singles and kind of going back to that appreciation uh, of the outdoors you know if if, you know if you all are listening to this and you're not you don't have kids or your own or whatever i think finding other people that some of your friends that may not have an appreciation of hunting or fishing or the outdoors you know being an advocate or just talking to them about it exposing them to it you know maybe you're going to have a bunch of people over your house and uh, you've got some wild game just for them to sample or fish just just to get that conversation out there i think is huge because you know we know scientifically we we know that our our country is uh, changing demographically and by mm-hmm. by that i mean particularly the the diverse the diverseness the, the diver- oh, i can't speak the diversity within ethnicities is going to shift rapidly by 2044 where you know your caucasians are going to become statistically a minority so lots of other people groups are, are coming here and and i think that's a good thing overall um but what that means is where it's typically been the caucasians and the whites that have hunted and fished and been outdoors at least here in the states 
the more diverse faces we can introduce to it, whether they become hunters or not, we really don't care. We just need advocates and supporters. Yeah. Because you you remember what happened several years ago with Cecil the lion and how that blew up. And, you know, it doesn't take much for a hunter to get a bad rap out there. And so, as you know, if you're listening to this and you don't have kids to introduce, man, if you can introduce your friends, I think that's a big takeaway. Yeah. Um, and, and getting back to the parent thing, Steph, I think, um, I think too, you know, and I've kind of realized this as a parent too now, like if my kids are in an activity, there's two options. I'm most likely just going to go and drop them off <laughs> or, or B I'm going to sit there and watch them while I'm on my phone or doing work or whatever. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, right. yeah. Or taking a phone call. I mean, we just, as parents we're, we're busy and I'm certainly not judging people for doing that because I'm the same way. And so you're, you're absolutely right. If you have a parent of a child that is super interested in hunting and that parent knows very little about it, that parent's going to need to be willing um, to, to mentor their own kid at some point. And um, I think that's why so many of our programs that I'm a part of with the DNR focus on, you know, reaching adults because they don't, they don't need that. They're on their own. They can drive they have less barriers like you mentioned but i think programs like outdoor mentors um when that parent is involved and if they do see the excitement in the child's face uh, maybe that parent is going to be much more likely to try it as well um you know to 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 see their kid continue on with it yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know i think overall um just with the youth hunts we've done um i can just tell regardless if the parent hunts or not or has any interest in it i can tell that they like genuinely just like they're doing like the best they can as a parent and they just want their kid to like have a great experience um Uh and a lot of the adult classes that i've either helped or taught myself you know or mentored adults um multiple people uh, uh, in each event I've ever done one of their driving factors for getting into hunting or fishing or whatever it was um, was to do it with their kid so like Mm -hmm. it, it, it wasn't even I mean yeah there was like you know the wild game getting outside new life skill like there's all that but like there's always a couple people that are doing this so they mm-hmm. can go along with their kid because their kid really wants to do this um yeah. i think that is so cool like that oh, yeah. that is like that has been some of my favorite people to mentor because you know your kids <laughs> have a way of driving you <laughs> to do things and push yourself in a way that maybe you were you know hadn't been pushed in a long time and I think that is just like the coolest thing to see um so yeah it's it's really neat to be doing like some of the work that like we get to do together you know separately it's just really really neat oh yeah absolutely we're we're certainly blessed Jamie give me one second you got it I don't know like straight is my third Brittany Spaniel I've ever had and he does the exact same thing that my first one did 
like now that he's potty trained um now he taps at the door just to go outside as much as he can and he'll do it like 70 times a day just to (laughs) just to tap on the door just to go outside and like make his rounds and so I'm trying to work on like letting him kind of like not always get to go outside when he wants to but he knows I'm gonna let him out because I don't want him to go to the bathroom in the house so Mm -hmm. I was trying to wait as long as I could without letting him outside um but he was going psycho in the other room (laughs) oh no you're fine so so now that we're in the dog training part of this (laughs) podcast you know it that's a whole new thing too um because you're right like we we got our pup black lab back in march and you know she was completely destructive i've never seen so much (laughs) oh like I, i think in our christmas letter this year to our family and friends that we don't see all that regular my, how did my wife word it? It was like, and this is Millie, uh, black lab with soft, buttery fur, but a tool of destruction. I mean, she just, yeah, it was bad. <laughs> um, oh. And I think what we end up doing is just letting her out. Like, you know, we've got a fenced in backyard and, and she just kind of took reign of it. And, and she just got used to being outside a lot. So now, she, uh, I think she knows to just go to the bathroom while we're out, well, whenever she's outside. And I've gotten now to where I can say, you know, go potty, which is what we always said to our daughters. Um, somehow that just transitioned over yeah. to the dog. Um, <laughs> and we'll go outside, you know, especially at night. Like she, she knows the routine now, but she's, she'll be a year. Oh my goodness. She'll be a year day after tomorrow. Aww. Yeah. So we'll have a little birthday party. Happy birthday, puppy uh-huh so yeah well, they're like it, the best and the worst though like dude i just said this last night that um so i was like because straight uh our Brittany, he went mm-hmm. through like a crazy growth spurt like i know puppies do that but like he he like grew out of his little chubby puppy stage like very fast like doubled in size like really quick and i remember going to the vet because he was drinking like an obscene amount of water for like a week straight like just crazy and the vet the vet goes any worries you know with him blah blah i go she goes she before i could even say anything she goes has he been drinking like a ton of water i go yeah she goes he had like a major growth spurt and like when puppies go through those they drink even more water than normal um Mm -hmm. and i was like yeah because nothing because i was kind of concerned maybe he had like a bladder infection or something like that and she's like oh nope she's like he just doubled in size really fast and i'm like i know (laughs) he he went through the little cute puppy stage but i will say i like his personality better now (laughs) before because he was like really destructive when he was cute little ball and now he's at least like you know he pushes my buttons, but he listens really well and he's really yeah. smart. And yeah. yeah, it's nice to get through yeah. that stage. Yeah, it is nice <laughs> when you get through that stage for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, my first time I took her out in the field, and again, I just basically had her recall trained. And uh, I, I introduced her to an e collar here too in the backyard. So she knew that, that beeping was a warning. And, you know, and I, to this day, I haven't had to to use the hot button in the field, which has been good. But yeah. um, I remember the first time we had her out was like early November. She, she, uh, 
she just like ran and like through the grass. There was no, no intentional purpose to it. It was just like, she was living her best life now. And, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And so, and then like yesterday was the first day she hunted with some other dogs and you know, it, she seemed, she seemed to me more interested in the hunting part than the other two dogs were. So, um, and I think these other two dogs had, had hunted quite a bit before too. So it was kind of cool to see her hunt and be, I guess, more into hunting than the dogs that we were with. But yeah, that she, is a, um, that's like a proud dog. Yeah. Parent moment. Well, and, yeah. And like in the last two weeks, so, um, in the last two weeks, what I've noticed is that if we're with, if I'm with multiple people, like if there's four or, or six of us on a big field, she, she will zigzag, right? So she'll start out and go to the left and then she'll come back across everybody in front of us to the right. And then she'll just zigzag back and forth everybody. Right. I mean, you've seen, yeah, she court, she's quartering, which is like a great, is that, is that, is that yeah. what that's called? Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's just, great. That's like, yeah, a, that's so, great. Yeah, and I had a buddy in the field the other day. He's like, "How'd you train her to do that?" I'm like, uh, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, and, that's funny. And and so she's you know doing that on her own, and uh, you know which I've seen other dogs do, and and I'm like, oh, wow, that's awesome. She just knows to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And she's getting her nose down to the ground a little bit more because I again she's flushed a few birds, but I think one of the things I'm looking at doing this spring and summer is is uh, getting involved in a local gun dog group where I can go and put her on some live birds and train her to retrieve and, and do that because as much as I was hoping to have that just done in the field this year, like I said, we've just not had any shot opportunities at birds really. And I don't know if that's the mixture of the new dog, not knowing exactly how to, you know, send them out or what, but um, yeah, it, it's another cool part in our journey as hunters to add the dog into the mix. So, yeah, anyway. I agree. No, I agree. It's it's like really I don't know how to like even put it into words, but when you have a dog that does something so naturally without any of your guidance, mm-hmm. that almost like makes you sometimes more proud than like <laughs> the things oh, yeah. that you taught it, you know? Yeah. Um, absolutely. You're like you're just kind of like, "Wow. Like yeah. how are how are you doing that like how do you know Mm -hmm. to do that so Mm -hmm. it's it's wild to me like um yeah I I uh like the first time you know like straight pointed and it was like so perfect and he held it and then like we've been teaching him whoa like when we feed him like or do treats or anything we you know we get him to sit or we get him to whoa yeah. where he has to kind of hold or whatever and like that's mm-hmm. trans and like we do that with his food but that's been transitioning really well into the field and like i can't even explain it like every time he does it i'm just like in awe of him and like what's happening and it i oh, yeah. the quartering thing um my my boyfriend uh uh dated a girl who did worked with uh Springer Spaniels who do field trials and so he was talking about how they train them like uh to do these like really tight quartering and he was showing me YouTube videos and like quartering with dogs and stuff when we got you know our Brittany and I was like I 
I go, my Britneys that I had, which are the same bloodline as straight, um, they quartered really well. Like, that's what you're saying about your dog. I'm like, they did that. I've never trained a dog to do that before. And he was showing me how you train a dog to do that if they don't do that naturally, you know, um, mm-hmm. or to get them to do it like tighter kind of thing. Um, yeah. And then so we took straight out like a couple of days ago and he was doing it really well. And so like I had that same feeling of like, huh, like I... I took that for granted because I kind of thought dogs knew how to do that. And I don't think that is how I think, I think it's kind of not all dogs do that. Yeah, <laughs> not all bird dogs yeah. do that. So, uh, you know, I was just lucky with the last couple I've had. Um, and that made me really appreciate, uh, what our dogs are doing. And like, when you're just telling me that, like, that makes me really appreciate that for mm-hmm. you <laughs> because oh, yeah. no, I, uh, I didn't know that that's not something bird dogs just didn't, you know, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so a couple of things I wanted to talk about, uh, sure. cause we went on some tangents, which I love, uh, and I could tangent all the time. That could just be like another name of my podcast, but, uh, <laughs> um, so as a hunter's education coordinator, Mm-hmm. What is like the what is like the primary part of your role? Like what is like or what is like an average day look like? Oh gosh, um, my average day is mostly spent behind a computer, um, emailing and purchasing and um, communicating. So it, it's not uh, you know it's not day to day. It's not. Uh, sexy I guess is the only word I can sure yeah come up with but you know there are those days where you know you get to go and be part of a field day or a learn to hunt workshop or uh, you get out and meet some of our hunter ed instructors that are teaching the classes and and those are always I think by far the the best days um uh but you know our our main goal with our hunter ed program is uh basically to um to make hunting safe and, and, and encourage it to be even safer. And so that's everything from proper use of a tree stand and harnesses to, um, you know, we talk a lot about target fixation, um, and, you know, uh, just uh, being an ethical, um, sportsman while in the field. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's making those hunter judgment calls when, you know, maybe, maybe it's legal to do this thing or that thing, but it doesn't necessarily make it right or, you know, the best thing to do. And so, um, you know, having discussions with students about making those decisions while in the field, because, you know, there, there's not a, there's not an officer there standing with you in the field to blow the whistle. If you do something wrong and throw a flag, it's, it's up to you as a hunter to, to learn and, and grow and decide. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's about, about that entry level basic knowledge of being safe with a firearm, being responsible and being ethical um, and and just teaching teaching I think what for so many for so long probably learned from their dads and granddads and uncles you know just on a whim. We now have a, a formalized class that's been around for over 60 years so yeah <clears throat> um, I will say too like I, I've I I pretty vividly remember Hunter's education when I was 11. I was just about to turn 12 years old. <laughs> and I remember it. And it was really good. Like, it was really hands-on. I, yep. I, I had a really good experience. Um, 
and then I've helped a couple hunter education classes and then I this last year became a um, hunter uh, educator volunteer um, mm-hmm. and during my like class to become the volunteer mm-hmm. I was really amazed by like how much more in depth and detail uh, there is than when I was a kid and you know part of that might be like I don't remember all of it <clears throat> necessarily but I I just I think that it's really encouraging um, to think about where we've come uh, with that and like how much you can tell the people care and like what they're putting into this and making sure that especially the classes that are in person I mean I know there's a huge benefit to doing online especially nowadays um, and I'm definitely not hating against that but the, <clears throat> the online classes are like I think really necessary in a lot of ways uh but the in-person classes i'm like super impressed with uh just i i learned something in the couple that i've been a part of every time you know um and it and it's it's really neat and like overall in my experience the kids and adults seem really engaged um so kudos to you and the volunteers and the people who put it together because i think they've been really good well, it's, it's 100% our volunteers, um, you know, that put these in-person classes on and our, our officers, too, across the state do a tremendous job in getting the classes set up. And, um, you know, we, we, we learn every year, but I, I think you know, this program was built on volunteers and, you know, we have hundreds of volunteers across the state that do this on their own time. They give up a couple of weekends a year to teach a class or two. Um, and they're prepping five, six, seven hours or more before the class. And then they come in and they spend 12 to 14 hours conducting the class. And, and, you know, sometimes they're driving a piece to go do that. They're giving their own fuel and mileage and everything else. So it's, a, a we wouldn't, have, we can't do it without them. And, uh, you know, we, we have some dedicated men and women out there that are just fantastic instructors. Uh, they do a phenomenal job in making the class hands-on and interactive, um, and uh, we just wouldn't be we wouldn't be where we were without them. And you know, you, you see these guys and gals that are teaching, and they're they're passionate like you and I are, and we've talked about that this morning. But they're they're there to make sure that that uh, people that are coming in to hunting um, know the basics at, at the very the very start, the mm-hmm. basics of firearm <clears throat> safety and and ethics and, and other things we've already kind of mentioned. Um, but yeah, it, it's a hundred percent our volunteers that do it. My job is just to make sure everybody has what they need, you know, to do their job. And, you know, if there's, yeah. if there's changes from our international association that need to get, you know, relayed or there's equipment issues or supply issues, that that's, that's where I come into the picture. So I'm, I'm just the guy behind the curtain pulling the levers. Never don't, don't pay any attention to me. Like, like Oz. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Way to, way to pick up on that. Yeah. Way to pick up on that. I'm quick. Exactly. <laughs> you are. No, I think that's really important. And I think that's, uh, I think that's amazing. Um, it's, it's like, I, in your time with Pheasants Forever and the Iowa DNR both, mm-hmm. uh, in your involvement <clears throat> do you have any insight into and I, I know that you probably do but like 
what has it looked like over the last few years of people becoming certified? Is that going up, down? Did 2020 like really inflate that and then now it's kind of evened out? Or like what has that looked? What has that looked like? Oh, for hunter education? Yeah. And like people, people buying a hunting license. Like, do you see those oh. numbers increasing or is it staying kind oh. of stagnant? Well, the 2020 was a boom. I mean, it, it jumped depending, I think fishing jumped nearly 18%. I'd have, I'm probably butchering that a bit, but it was a huge jump. Um, hunting jumped close to 10%. I mean, it was enormous. I mean, it was, it was to the point to where most people in the R3 and hunter ed world were, okay, how do we, how do we keep these new hunters in? And then it was mostly people that had hunted previously, but like, like we've talked about their parents that have kids in soccer and eight different sports and three different civic activities and, you know, no time. And suddenly they have all the time in the world because those, those kids events are all canceled because of COVID. And so um, they had a lot more time on their hands. I mean, even, even our field to fork program, which is for adults, uh, had much more participation last year with hunters getting out in the field, I think, than this year. And it's just because things have gone back to normal, so to speak, here yeah. in Iowa. And, um, and yeah, so absolutely, 2020 was a boom. And um, we saw a lot of great participation. I don't think that that was anywhere close to being the case in 2021. Um, in terms of hunter ed, we had to adapt, um, because, you know, our instructors had to follow protocols, you know, as, as ordered by the governor, which, um, you know, you know, being able to, to do an in-person class was a challenge. There were some that did that and we're grateful for them trying to do that and and to make it happen. But I, I think our certifications were probably down just a little bit, but they're, they're, the, the thing about the way the law is written in Iowa is that you have to have it by the time you turn 16. And so we always see in October and November every year a lot of push from parents who've got that 16-year-old child who plans to go shotgun hunting in December that has been, you know, in eight different sports all summer. And, okay, now it's time to think about Hunter Ed. So a lot of cases it's an afterthought. And so what we try to do is – we tried to set up some virtual classes for them to get the field day requirement where they still have to demonstrate how to hold a firearm properly, the parts of a firearm, some of the things that they would encounter in an in-person field day. We've just tried to do that virtually over uh, online platforms like Zoom or Google Hangouts or whatever. And, uh, you know, so it, it, we've certainly had to adapt, I guess is probably the, the big answer to that question, Steph. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I was kind of curious about. I remember asking some folks in the DNR about, I remember someone telling me turkey hunting was like crazy. Oh, absolutely. That turkey. Went, went yeah, because it was in the spring, right? When everything, yeah. I mean, you had, you had the lockdown. Yep. You know, coming out of the lockdown was turkey season. And so, um, whereas in the fall, some businesses, you know, things were looking a little bit more normal in Iowa, but, you know, with the exception of, social distancing and masks and stuff in places. But outside of that, you were pretty much back to normal by the fall, which we still saw increases in participation in fall. But yeah, turkey hunting was exploded that year. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember, I can't remember who told me that, but they were, it was like a really insane number. Um, 
which I thought was really neat. But then I was like, I I don't know. Like, it's kind of funny because I can get both sides because initially I'm like, that's awesome. And then I thought about that. I'm like, no, I don't want want anyone turkey hunting where I go turkey hunting. But I'm like, eh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up a good point. I mean, we're, uh, you know, for 10 years now, we've been trying to solve a hunter decline issue. And, um, and you know, our, our dads and granddads are aging out. Um, they're not, you know, they're not participating. And, and they've shouldered this, like I said, since the 90s, when I started to kind of get exposed to parts of it. And um, they're aging out, and there's less and less new hunters coming in. And so, What's at stake is the fact that, you know, our license dollars pay for so much conservation programs here in Iowa. Um, you know, they help fund hunter ed. They help fund management work on, on public lands. Um, they pay for all the research and, and monitoring of the populations. Uh, there's a lot that is paid for by these licenses and tags when you buy them. And then you throw in all the federal match that comes in from when you buy a, a firearm or ammo or a bow and arrow or fishing equipment and um there's a lot at stake if we don't do more to get more hunters in the field but you know you bring up a good point there about how as much as we want to see more hunters in the field from my perspective because of that funding mechanism uh, we also hate to see people at our honey hole (laughs) or yeah you know nobody likes being out on public land in a tree stand and and some guy walking right underneath you just before daylight you know, right. that's that's no yeah. fun so uh and you can ask you know any waterfowl hunter and it's it's crowded already you know because there's limited places where where you waterfowl hunt and the people tend to congregate uh, in higher numbers with waterfowl hunters so yeah. anyway yeah it's a it's a it's a catch-22 we need more people but we also got to figure out how to share space and we can only buy so much public land at a time. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> and it's also relative too, right? Like, oh, yeah. kind of like I look at it like a facts versus feelings kind of thing. Like, because mm-hmm. in the moment, you know, especially waterfowl hunting, uh, you know, what I'm finding, Iowa isn't like a waterfowl mecca, you know, anyway. But it, it there is great waterfowl hunting in Iowa, both duck mm-hmm. and goose hunting. There's great, mm-hmm. great waterfowl hunting. Um. But, you know, there's a lot of surrounding states where it's, like, much more superior, right? <clears throat> and, but we've had a really dry year. Um, there's limited uh, land um, and spots to go. Uh, you know, goose hunting, on, honest, honestly, overall, goose hunting, you're going to want to go on private property um, most of the time. So, there's so many layers to that equation, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually giving a presentation to... Um, some of the Iowa Ducks Unlimited folks <clears throat> in a in a week, and we have a presentation to talk about um, youth hunters and like where they spend their time, right? What type of hunting they're into, and yep. uh, waterfowl is one of the lower ones. Um, and so it's interesting because I think when you go out duck hunting and then you see like you said, a boat full, you know, five people out, you feel, oh, you're like, oh, there's no spots. I feel overran. (laughs) But like, really? It's actually like some of the least numbers of hunters and waterfowl. Like waterfowl is kind of like it. It seems like there's a lot of people into it. But really, percentage wise, it's actually a pretty low number of folks compared to like deer hunting or turkey hunting. Um, There's just more land for deer and turkey. 
Um, yeah. It's just more spread out. So it, it seems like we're overrunning, but it's all relative to like the land that's available. And yeah. um, anyway, but yeah, it, it no, just, it's fascinating to me. It is. It is. Waterfowl hunting did pick up quite a bit in the 20. 20- 13 2014 2015 years and i think uh that had something to do with a certain tv show um <laughs> that had a popular family on it so yeah um you know who made and it's water social you can focus. Yeah, do it with absolutely. people it's not um yeah. there there's some <clears throat> there's definitely some expenses with waterfowl hunting like oh, yeah, for sure absolutely. uh yeah. and but it is like a really attractive in a lot of ways. Like you can like cook food in the boat or the blind or, you know, mm-hmm. and, and talk with your buddies and, um, mm-hmm. hopefully you have a friend in there that's good at calling, you know, and you can kind of lean exactly. on them sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, like there's a lot of attractive pieces to waterfowl hunting and like on Instagram, I follow a ton of like outdoor and hunting photographers and the waterfowl guys, like the photography oh, yeah. you see, they make it look, I mean, it is fun, but they make it look like a lot of fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's definitely marketed well. Um, oh yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's, it's neat. Um, so, okay. So on the number conversation in your opinion or what you've seen so far, and I and I'm gonna ask about R three here next to mentally yeah. prepare you, but like, um, number wise as a whole, are you seeing hunting grow at all, or is it still stagnant? Like, is it still like, are there enough people falling off and getting into it to keep it like in a good place? Steady. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it I think steady is I mean, we're looking at somewhat of a decline i believe but i think overall i mean nationally it's it's in a in a decline and so when you throw all 50 states in there there's a lot of work going on at national and regional levels to try to you know even diversify the faces that you see on hunting and fishing pictures and in magazines you know we're there's there's a lot of work going just in the marketing r3 there was a big chain or hunting and there's a big change with one of our major federal dollar um, sources last year, you know, where we can, we can actually create projects for marketing and be able to receive those federal dollars um, to help with that, which was a huge game changer to be able to put uh, more marketing into hunting. Um, And what I mean by that is just, you know, things like they could get hunting. I mean, you, you remember probably back in the early two thousands, late nineties, um, you know, take me fishing had like TV ads, you know, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd watch an outdoor show and you'd see a little kid and the dad and the kid saying, dad, take me fishing. And, you know, that was the big thing. But anyway, we've got that available for, for hunting now, which I think is huge. Um, but I think overall in Iowa, our numbers are pretty, pretty steady. I mean, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. We're probably seeing as many come into it as they're leaving every year. And, uh, and buying licenses and, and there may even been a slight increase too um over the last couple of years but as a trend over the last five to ten years i'd say we're, we're still holding pretty steady yeah and i i might be thinking too much into this and might be asking a weird question here too but so it's really awesome to hear like iowa staying steady like that's i mean that that's exciting um but hearing <clears throat> national on a decline 
I would think if it's nationally declining and if it's aggressive, that definitely has like a ripple effect from state to state, I would assume, right? So like if nationally it can continues to decline, that has to have some sort of negative impact on our uh, state, right? Or is it not yeah. quite? I mean, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think that's where we may see, you, you know, if, if numbers are declining nationally, we may see fewer hunters coming into Iowa, out-of-state hunters to hunt. Um, you know, but but basically how, how it functions is when a license is purchased for Iowa, those, those funds stay in Iowa. They're used in Iowa. And as long as those numbers are staying steady and healthy, you know, we're in good shape regardless yeah. of what's going on, on around us. Um, yeah. I think where you could see some management impacts would be, you know, most of our, all of our waterfowl are managed in flyway units. So mm -hmm. this is where several states are along the Mississippi flyway or the central flyway or, you know, those state agencies, you know, work together, they monitor those numbers, they monitor migration. Um, you know, and if states are having issues and that, you know, they have to lay some people off, then those resources aren't there to help with that. And, you know, you have two or three states in a flyway, um, you know, lose staff to help with that, then, then yeah, that can have ripple impacts for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> no, thank you. That makes a lot of, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, um, I know we've already been talking for at least an hour, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I wanted to go into R3 a little bit now that we're sure. kind of just go, we're kind of talking about it already without talking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could you talk to me about what R3 is and like kind yep. of your involvement or experience with it? Um, but yeah, whatever, whatever you want to share about it. Gotcha. Yeah, no. Um, so R3 stands for recruitment, retention and reactivation. Um, so you kind of have those, those three R's as, as uh, sages, you know, going back to our stage discussion. Uh, with recruitment, we're trying to bring new people in um, or even lapsed hunters back into the fold. These are hunters who maybe haven't hunted in three to five years or longer to get them back in. So that would be recruitment. Uh, retention would be efforts that keep our hunters buying licenses every year and participating every year or uh, opportunities for them to become more avid. So just like we talked about stuff, you know, I started as a deer hunter. I'm now a bird hunter uh, or both. I'm more avid of a hunter than I was when I left Kentucky where it was just deer. So now I've got more options, which is going to increase the likelihood that I continue to buy licenses and tags. So that would be retention, right? Making a more avid hunter or keeping our hunters satisfied. Um, and then reactivation, I kind of alluded to it. That's when you have a lapsed hunter that has hit a life stage. Maybe they've gotten married, maybe they've had kids, maybe they've moved um, and they didn't buy a license or they haven't bought a license, license in a few years. And so the idea is that you're finding ways to reach that person and bring them back into the into the outdoors uh, and, and into hunting or fishing. So that those are the three R's. And what we're trying to do, I mean, there's a variety of things. There's a there's a programmatic level, I guess, and then there's a marketing level, and then there's like a, a strategic planning level, I guess. And so with programmatic level work, we're we're looking at opportunities like our fill the fork program that takes 
adults who have little to no archery hunting experience and introduces them to archery hunting um, for whitetail deer in Iowa. Uh, we've partnered with the Iowa Bow Hunters Association this year. Um, we've had a lot of great partners, retail stores across the state have helped us with this. Um, our state park system has been a huge help over the years, but this program is designed for adults to try to get them into hunting. It gives them everything to get started, provides them a mentor, a place to hunt, and uh, they get to try to hunt season long. And then we bring in a, a butcher uh, from a locker, and then we bring in a, a chef that has some culinary training. And so they learn the whole process uh, from the field to the fork. And uh, that's, that's an example of a program. We also do learn to hunt classes, uh, mentored hunts um, that get adults out. And I keep saying adults because going back to our conversation earlier, they've got more money to spend. They have to buy a license right away. Uh, they're more likely to stick with it. They don't have to have mom or dad or a guardian to take them out every single time. So um, our efforts on that end personally are, are very adult driven. We've got great partners like Outdoor Mentors. A lot of our chapters and organizations across the state are doing youth hunts. And so we feel like that's being covered already. Um, so those are all examples of, of recruitment or, or programmatic sort of introductions into R3. Um, marketing would be any of our ads, our social media campaigns. Um, we're working to, to do some really cool things with other states right now, um, trying to build a kind of a mentor clearinghouse, so to speak, where if you're interested in being a mentor, you conduct a, you, you know, you have a background check conducted on you, and then we would hook you up with, with someone new that's interested in going out hunting. And then it, it would be kind of like a, I hate to say, kind of a online dating sort of thing where we kind of try to pair people up. Um, that's one thing we've been working on for a while. Um, there's also, um, you know, just again, changing the imagery of hunting, taking photographs of people with diverse faces and diverse backgrounds enjoying the outdoors or going to the shooting range. Those are all things we're trying to do to encourage people that, you know, may see all these white people on the front end of magazines or, or on TV commercials about hunting uh, to make them feel more comfortable with going out there and trying it themselves. So uh, it's little things and it's big things when it comes to marketing. And then there's strategic level thinking, and that's where you know, within a state agency or within a group of state agencies, uh, we work to, together to solve larger problems. So, you know, if, um, you know, if Nebraska and Iowa are working together to get more females in the outdoor, um, they, they've invited Kansas to be part of this cool thing called She Goes Outdoors. Um, you know, it, it started off, and now it's a subscription box, I guess is my point. So, um, they they pick a theme like i think the most recent one's been ice fishing uh, for 50 bucks you get a box of stuff sent to you um you know like a uh, an ice scoop if you're ice fishing to get your ice chunks out of your water uh some warm socks variety of bait um i think even a, a little ice fishing pole um yeah so it's just kind of a care package for people who are interested in getting out um, and then there's another one, you know, they, they change topics monthly. It's a great thing. So th those are where we're trying to work strategically with other states on regional levels uh, to do a variety of projects. So uh, all of it, with, when it boils down to uh, Steph with R3 is we're just trying to, to make new hunters, make more avid hunters and, and 
diversify our support system, you know, getting people who may never hunt, at least exposed to it, exposed to its messaging and making them supporters of it because we need advocates. <laughs> we'll need advocates as, as our demographics continue to change here in Iowa. Yeah. In, in the nation. So. Absolutely. And I'm just saying this because even though I think all of uh, my listeners are really awesome um, because I've talked to so many and they're like <laughs> incredible people. Um, if there is anyone out there kind of thinking, well, that's all great, but like, is it working? Are you seeing that? You know, whatever. I can just talk from experience of being a part of uh, either you know, mentoring with you, like the field to fork, which listeners, if you've been following along, I've talked about the field to fork uh, class and uh, multiple times in the experience I had. And Jamie is the guy who got me involved. So here he is. We've talked about this (laughs) a lot, a lot on the podcast. And um, also I can say from experience, both being on the learning and the teaching side in the last year, whether it's all women or co-ed event, the ages um, ethnicity, backgrounds, uh, like diverse in thought and reason for being there for sure. These events that I've been to, there is all walks of life at every mm-hmm. single one um, this last two years. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I, I, I can't uh, speak to the numbers necessarily, but I know that I am definitely seeing um, – the work of what you guys are doing uh playing out because it i mean it's all kinds of kinds and like oh, yeah. it's beautiful it's such yeah. a cool thing yeah it is we've you know we've we've seen you know a variety of ethnicities um you know we've seen um variety of lifestyles uh it's just been cool we've seen um you know people that are from the lgbtq community we've seen you know, um, African-Americans, you know, we've seen Hispanics, you know, we've seen a variety of walks of life come into the program. It's, it's been fun. We've had food truck drivers. We've had lawyers. Uh, we've had doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had, we've had Joe, the plumber, uh, you know, we, we've had, you name it. We've, we've had them in this program and in our programs and it's been phenomenal to see. We, we sat down a, a few weeks ago to look at our fill the fort program. Um, and you know about about 17 or 18 percent are are non-white um, just by visual observation, and and uh, we're we're doing some follow-up surveys to confirm that and uh, to get a better picture of uh, of what our diversity makeup is over the program over the past five years, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'd love to see that number go up, but we understand that that Iowa, you know, certainly in pockets, is going to have more diversity when you get into the urban centers and. And that's where we're trying to target this program the most. And so we want to be reflective of, of, of the tapestry of Iowa when it comes to faces and, and lifestyles and backgrounds. And so we're, we're pretty proud of it. I, yeah. I think, too, you know, it, it is cool to see things work and function and, and see some success. Um, but, you know, if you're a hunter, if you're an avid hunter and you're listening to this, you know, we're only reaching like 40 to 50 people a year with our field report program. Um, you know, Steph's only get so many kids out on youth hunts. And mm-hmm. if we're really wanting to see a change for this, it, it's got to happen at the individual hunter level. And it's got to happen because you got to want to do it. Um, 
and and you kind of have to put yourself on hold for part of the season to do that. Uh, and it's not an easy ask by any means, but it's crucial. I mean, I think the best way we're going to solve a, a hunter decline issue is for every hunter to begin to take somebody new, at least yeah. at least one new person a season out. And, yeah. you know, a couple of seasons over time, an example, I had a buddy at, at my church um, come up to me this summer and he was talking of one of your fellow podcast competitors. He's kind of got a show on Netflix too. And uh, hell's from Wisconsin. Um, but uh, he, he asked me if I knew this guy and I was like, yeah, I've, I've heard of him and listened to some of his stuff and watched his stuff. And he said, he really got into the show on Netflix. Well, well that's cool. And he, he, he years ago had a shirt that said avid endorsement. Like he just, <laughs> yeah, was, was an inside guy. And so I asked him if he's interested in, in hunting. And he said, you know what, I, I may take it up sometime. And so um, kind of kept encouraging him and talking to him about it off and on, not pressuring him. Uh, I said, well, if you decide to do it, you got to get Hunter Ed. You got to get that out of the way. And so he did his class and he passed his test and everything. And he went out last Tuesday, a week ago today, he went out with me and another guy. And uh, we pheasant hunted. And, and uh, I think he had a good time. Certainly said he was up for it. And uh, so he's uh, he's going to be tied up, I think, the rest of the season. He's not going to be able to get out mm -hmm. with us again. But, you know, I'm hoping he goes out a couple of times with us next year. And maybe he'll go out with us a couple of times every year. And, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. No. I, I think everybody everybody needs to take advantage of those friends and family members like that. I think we're going to see a, a real sustainable effort with R3. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I think, yeah, yes. I, I think the simple as one person a season is such a huge, huge yeah. impact. Um, mm -hmm. Like, even directly for myself, like, I think, I, I think I'm the only one in my family who thinks this is, like, so freaking awesome. And maybe I'm just, like, <laughs> way nerdy about it. But my yeah. older, um, I have two brothers. I have a younger brother and an older brother. And uh, <clears throat> my older brother is not a hunter. He did not... Uh, grow up hunting with our with our dad um like my little brother and I did um but my older brother is very competitive and he's a really good athlete and um I mean very competitive and so just like a couple months ago uh we asked my brother if he would want to come to Missouri with us uh because my dad and my younger brother are going and we're like you know Andy that's my brother I'm like we we'd really like you to go He's like, well, is it going to be cold? Well, we're like, well, it's January. I mean, it's not going to be warm. and But we are going to Missouri, and it's been kind of a warm winter. And he's like, all right, I'll get my hunter safety, and I'll go, right? So yep. he's 37, and he's going hunting for the first time. Well, the speckle belly hunts in a couple weeks that we're going on. But since he got his hunter safety, he decided to go uh, shotgun hunting with my dad and my younger brother. And my brother got his first deer ever, like oh, a cool. week or two ago. Yeah. And he got it the same day my younger brother got, like, his second buck, like, ever. Cool. And so, because uh, we're, we're pretty, I would say overall, like, we're, I don't know, we always waterfowl hunted with my dad and stuff. Um, my dad's a big bow hunter. But... Uh, I just like, I was almost like, I was almost in tears over this, you know, like I thought this was so freaking cool to have like my <laughs> own brother who 
you know, our dad is a really avid hunter. You know, my other brother and I are really avid hunters. You know, I have a podcast and do this kind of stuff. Like, how does he not hunt? You know, my nephew Mm -hmm. has been showing interest. I have a 12-year-old nephew. He's been showing interest and wanting to go squirrel hunting and kind of dabble. He's kind of like slowly getting into it. Um, And I have no idea if that's like what pushed my brother into it. I, I don't know. But like, even in my own family directly, it took some time. But like now my brother, you know, just got his first year. He's going goose hunting. Like, we're going to like take my nephew squirrel hunting, you know, like it's yeah. it's just wild to me. Um, it was just, you know, not like a lot of pressure, just always making sure he, you know, like inviting him, encouraging him to go, we'll help you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now he's doing it and it's like, it's, I just think that's so freaking awesome. And it's my own family, you know? And, um, so I, I can't, like just from the few people that I've mentored, there's a ripple effect. Like a lot of those people have taken hunting on even sometimes more hardcore than I do uh, and have taught other people and like post about it, encourage other people. So like you never really know like that one person you take out, like what kind of effect they're going to have on everybody else too. Oh, that's, yeah, that's the truth. I mean, you can, you know, you're almost, you're, well, you're, you're in a sense, you're making disciples. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you're, yeah. You're, uh, you're taking people out in hopes that they get the bug. They become kind of self-sustained. I mean, you look back, I, I started my job with Pheasants Forever, you know, in August. And I think that first first part of November, I was invited um, right after I was able to purchase a non or a resident license because I had to be here the 90 days. So, so right after that window mark hit, I had a chance to go out and hunt with my, my supervisor uh, at the time, a couple of guys that hired me. And it was, it was my first pheasant hunt. And uh, I look back now and think, man, they they probably figured I would enjoy it and, and still hunt. Certainly they probably hope so. But would they have imagined that by year five I'd have my own dog and be taking people on my own now, which is what's happened this season, um, without me even realizing it, you know. So uh, they didn't realize it, but, you know, Tom and Ryan, they, they got me out there and got me interested in it, and look at me now. I'm taking new people, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I know Jamie. You've like inspired and impacted a lot of people. Like I've <laughs> been there watching it unfold. <laughs> and like when you are speaking to people and you're very relatable and you're very honest about like the things that you're knowledgeable on, the things maybe you don't know, right? And I and I think yeah. that's like a big piece of it though too. And I know yeah. I respond well to that. Like I um overall I don't get this feeling anymore because uh, I just surround myself with like really awesome like outdoorsmen who just want to have a great time mm-hmm. uh, but you know you can you can find those people who have been doing it for so long and know all these things and they almost come off as like a know-it-all maybe you know and maybe oh, not yeah. intentionally mm-hmm. um, they just know so much and like sometimes people who are like that can sometimes be not the best teachers right because it, it's there's such a there's there's so there's such a uh, disconnect between them and the newbie right sometimes it just mm-hmm. depends um again that's not a one-size-fits-all but I, i'm just saying this because i know i encourage this a lot like if there's anyone out there who's listening who knows 10 20 percent more than another person 
and is approachable and willing to like mentor someone oh. and teach. Like, I think that's yeah. really all you need and just be honest yeah. about what you're good at and be confident, but also be honest about what you're not so good at and what you don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I think that makes a huge impact. Like, and I, I'm saying this as a compliment to you, uh, Jamie, like, cause you are very upfront about, you know, um, if something isn't like your area of expertise and you lean on other people who do, um, yeah. I think that's what makes you so impactful for this role because like people like want to learn alongside with you um, and want to learn the other things that you do know from you and be like, okay, well, how did he get good at that then? Um, So I just think that's, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a great, great thing. And I, I, I am also saying it. So people who are listening, like who are saying, well, I'm not the expert. It's like, well, you don't really need to be, Uh -uh. you just need to be safe. Yeah, need to be safe and, and willing to try it. I mean, so much of it's just trial and error. And, you know, like I told like I told everybody earlier, um, and I know this may be a longer podcast, but, you know, it. I've been out 10 times this year with my dog, and I haven't, I haven't even shot at a rooster with her. I've had a couple of buddies that had a chance to shoot and, and, and missed, and, and, you know, I had one buddy that actually downed a bird and, and, and I'm sitting there going, what am I doing wrong? And chances are I may be doing something wrong that some other hunter would tell me that, well, you haven't done it this way or that, but I'm learning. I'm, I'm certainly taking it all in. And I think most importantly, I'm learning the relationship between me and my dog mm-hmm. and uh, seeing the bigger picture, you know, because, yeah, I haven't bagged a bird this this year, but. I had a buddy that hadn't hunted in a long time bag a bird and he was excited about that it was a nice bird you know my dog's learning to quarter i didn't train her to do that but she's quartering um you know i've, I've introduced at least one brand new guy to pheasant hunting and i took two or three new hunters out a few weeks ago a position that i'd never been in before so my season has been rich and full even though I haven't bagged a single bird this season, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I relate. <laughs> so, yeah. anyway. No, I think, stuff. yeah, well, yeah, um, that is like 100% a compliment. And I, I'm, I'm really interested in watching you and hearing about, like, your comment earlier in the podcast about how you are finally kind of at this point where, um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing what you said, but, like, a successful season isn't, now dictated based on if you you know got something every time you go out yeah. right um yeah. and and i you know i feel like that's where i'm at right now too um i think this is one of the first times ever especially as it relates to deer hunting where i have not beat myself up mentally about not having a deer yet um because mm-hmm. i am really really hard on myself when it comes to deer season and i that's probably some sort of childhood competitive trauma. I don't <laughs> That's been, like, unsettled. I don't know. Uh, yep. But, like, you know, just seeing, like, uh, uh, my family, like I alluded to, is very competitive. And my dad has a lot of big bucks on the wall. So I just kind of always felt like I had to live up to that. Whether he said that or not, it's just kind of, like, something I thought in my head. Uh, and I don't really feel like that anymore. Like, I don't really I, – I want, of course – a 170 on my wall of course i do 
Um, but I, I did tell Jacob, like, if I shoot something over, I think I said a 160. If I shot a 160 this year or bigger, I'm going to retire from deer hunting and just focus on goose hunting <laughs> for the rest well, of my go. life. <laughs> yeah. There you go, Steph. That's a goal. I mean, yeah, yeah it, it's funny you say that. And so in, in 2014, I shot a, I shot a, a non-typical that was, um, about a hundred yards off. I shot him with a rifle. There's plenty of archery hunters out there that would tell me I didn't really kill that deer, but long story short, it was with a rifle. It was in Kentucky. Um, he was a nice buck. Uh, you know, his, his main tine G1, I think comes up out of the base of the skull that, that tine on one side was kind of gnarly, you know, I had four or five little points. It was just kind of cool looking deer. Um, I think the gross score was around 150. I think, I think he finished it. So it was in that weird category and I'm butchering this, but it was in that weird category where it was a typical, but it could also kind of be scored as a non-typical where it got some deductions. Long story short, it grossed, I think at 160, but it ended up being like a 153. Mm-hmm. A very nice deer. Yeah, a buck absolutely. of a lifetime. Yeah, right? absolutely. So here's my point. That, buck hung in my office in in frankfurt kentucky um for a number of years and it was always cool to just you know you get off the elevator and you're turned and you could see it on the wall right it was kind of cool um my wife wasn't crazy about having it in the house um so i took it to the office moved to des moines uh and that didn't have an office to put it in and it probably wouldn't fit on a cubicle wall but (laughs) anyway my point is that thing is hanging in our laundry room now and, and I get to see it when we come in and it's there. It's got more memories tied to it than anything. And, uh, I, 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 I value it. Don't get me wrong, but I'm the only one that sees it every day except for my family. And, you know, I, I hate to say <laughs> it, it's just becoming a, just there on the wall. I'm more tied more tied to the memories of that day and the feeling I had, the conversations I had uh, with my dad, who's now passed away about that deer, um, a friend I was hunting with that day <laughs> and, and, and the story that went behind it, then I am looking at that deer. So when I see that deer, I, I think about those memories and if something happened and that deer wasn't there anymore or whatever, I, I'm, I guess my point is it's just a dusty old deer. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And just like anything else, you get something that's new and awesome and you value it. But over time, it, it, it kind of cherishes. So, I mean, if you do get that 160, certainly mount it. But, uh, yeah, I guess you can hang it up. I guess maybe that's what happened to me and I didn't realize it because I shot that deer and I think I killed I think I killed a couple of does two years after that. And then once I moved out here, I haven't, haven't harvested a single deer yet. But Well, you know, I, I actually. I guess I can retire from deer hunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it causes a lot of strife and anxiety. So <laughs> it might yeah, be good exactly. for your mental, yeah. physical health. Yeah. Um, I, you know, to what you're talking about, you're, I, I, and I totally understand what you're saying about it being like a dusty old deer, but like uh, now, but I interviewed um, a couple taxidermists on the podcast, and one of them in particular said something that, and I'm going to paraphrase again, but he said it like, in such a cool way. And I value this as someone who has a horrible memory. 
Um, I will say when there's an animal, like when there's a picture on the wall or um, the actual animal itself on the wall, um, and I look at that, those memories are so vivid to me. Um, it's like almost like a constant subconscious reminder of like that experience. And I know that sounds maybe corny, but like, you know, there's just, you know, life is just a bunch of crazy moments. Right. And it's really easy to kind of just forget about so many of them until it's brought back to the front of our mind. And I think that's something that's really cool about taxidermy if you want to look at it from a deep level is it does when you see that animal in particular because all of them look a little bit different whatever it is um because right now i'm staring at the back end of my full body turkey mount (laughs) and turkey mounts are so ridiculous like they take up so much room they take up so much room and we live in like a 900 square foot house so it's like crazy but when i look at it and i think about it like I remember the whole. I mean, it was it was uh it was a lot of work, this because we we reap we reaped this turkey. So it was it was a lot it was a lot of work. But I do think that is something great about taxidermy, um, is it brings those memories like flooding back, and they're a little bit more vivid and picturesque. I think than just sometimes general hunting memories. And that's not true. You know, I still remember my first duck hunt very vividly and I don't have a duck to show for it, but, um, you know, you know, hopefully you know what I'm saying. Oh, I do. (laughs) I do. It's, it's about those memories. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I, there was this book written by a guy from Kentucky, um, that I'd come across a few years ago. It's called Kogan's woods. And, uh, it, uh, it reminisces about this guy's childhood learning to squirrel hunt in northern Kentucky um, back in the 50s and 60s. And so things were different then. And and uh, he he used to, and I've caught myself doing this a time or two, but I, I, I've only done it a couple of times. But in the book, what he'll do is he'll get back home or he'll carry with him a little mini notepad and he'll jot down the day's quarry, you know, three squirrels, this part of the farm, who was with him, and he'll he'll roll that up and he'll put it in one of the old shell casings. And uh, in the book, uh-huh. he just had this, you know, ammo box of these old casings, and he'd sit down periodically and go through them, and um, you know, he'd pull out those papers and he'd reminisce and think about the people that were with him this day, the squirrels, and and how that fostered the memories. And um, you know, I don't I don't carry paper with me, but from time to time, if something cool happens, I will pick up a shell casing and I'll get home and with a Sharpie, I'll just jot down, you know, like I, I've got the shotgun shell from my first mentored hunt. I went on uh, just when I took that job back in Kentucky 10 years ago. And um, I've got that one. I've got, uh, <laughs> I've got my first two shells. I shot out of my, my, my new over under shotgun I got two years ago. Right. And I, I wrote down who I was with and what we were hunting. Um, you know, and, and to, to, to us that enjoy this, you know, I, I think the memories are such a big, big part of what we do. And, you know, you think about the relationships you have with people that you've been out in the field with and, and that's what it's about. I mean, yeah. I, and that changed for me, obviously I've told you I was, all about trying to get meat in the freezer but but now it's become more about the memories and i think that's where i've evolved as a hunter so 
Yeah. No, I, I... There's your deep moment for the day, Steph. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That Those are my favorite. I've never been very good at small talk. Uh, yeah. So I like to just, like, go there with everybody yeah. as fast as I can. Um, yeah. So I, I love it and appreciate it. And um, I know so many other people do. And I think the, you know, work that you're doing is incredible and special. And I also feel that our whole, like iowa dnr crew that you work with is incredible mm-hmm. and special too yeah. like yeah, they are like i i've never lived anywhere else um <laughs> or anything but i mean just from traveling and, and people i've had you know take some of my classes that are from other states and other places i've gone um i, I not that there's not other great people across the country but like iowa does have like a really special crew of people um well. Yeah, I, and I, I can say this because I uh, worked in Kentucky for their state agency. I, I wanted, so my wife is from Iowa. I knew that Iowa was going to be on the short list of places to end up someday. <laughs> but I was in contact with, with the people here that I work for now and with, you know, years in advance. And Iowa, you know, and, and the team here leads the country in some really great things. And, they're they're full thinking and they're ambitious and uh, just because they get told it may be difficult to do it doesn't keep them from doing it they figure out a way to do it and they they lead by example in that and i think there are plenty of state agencies that look to iowa as an example when it comes to r3 and and hunter education Um, and i knew that coming out here and so to be part of a team and then now to be full-time with that team is is a, a huge huge honor and a blessing so you're right you're not just saying that iowa is is unique and it's got something special yeah yeah that's awesome to hear um and i hope that i i know there's other states out there that have something like that too and something special um but i'm just uh grateful because you know i have um all kinds of kinds of friends and family who um, you know, born and raised in Iowa and just find Iowa to be incredibly boring and not exciting. Um, and I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> like, I think yeah. I was great. Uh, and, you know, I think if you want to get into like the outdoor world, uh, world, I think it would surprise you. Like we might not have mountains and oceans, but we have some cool things here and cool resources if you want to get into it. And so, um, and actually, Jamie, today is, you know what's really funny? I did not plan this, but I randomly looked this up the other day. Uh, today is December 28th when we were recording this podcast. Did you know, we'll end on this, did you know that Iowa um, was founded as a state in December um, uh, on the 28th, 28th of December? I think I'm, I don't think I'm making that up. Nope. 1842. <gasps> 46. 76. 1846. Iowa Town? No, no. No, you're right. Nope. Today's the 175th birthday, so it would be 1846. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay, Isn't that so cool? Yeah. Yeah, I did know. You did know. That's awesome. I did know. <laughs> we yeah. didn't even plan this. No. No. Yeah. It's Iowa's, Iowa's birthday, so you can go blow out a candled cake and spread <laughs> your germs. Just kidding. <laughs> oh my yeah. God, this just came full circle. It did. Uh, it did. That's amazing. Yeah, um, it did. That is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, it's an honor, Steph. It's fun. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, 
any um i will share uh in the notes of the podcast so people can um go to the iowa dnr website but when i google you jamie you know what comes up all over the place and if you want me to lead these people our guests Ooh, somewhere um when i google you it comes up with all these learn to hunt programs in iowa whole bunch of really? different kinds yep that's crazy um, i i thought there i thought there was an artist or a musician Someone else with my name. That's what it used to come up as. So oh. maybe it's changed. <laughs> maybe my influence has gotten greater. Well, over I, I did do uh, J- Jamie Cook DNR. I did do that. Oh, okay. That's what I Googled. Well, then there you go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, go. But is there anywhere I should send people to learn to learn about either like you and your program or the Learn to Hunt program? Uh, where can I send everybody? Uh, you can go. We're trying to update our website there quite a bit. Um, but I think the quickest way in the door would just be iowadnr.gov slash learn to hunt um you can google that too and it'll put you right to our learn to hunt page obviously you can reach out to me by email um jamie.cook at dnr.iowa.gov i'm sure we'll get that into the notes of the podcast and then we can drop my phone number in there too people can contact me anytime um we'll try to find a class for you if you're interested if you're interested in mentoring we'll try to find a program that you can help be part of and, and get new people in outdoors can't find anybody just you know through your own social networks and then yeah even if you're interested in helping out with the hunter ed program with an instructor or volunteer we can we can certainly talk to you about that lots of ways to get involved and be happy to talk to anybody about about what we've discussed today for sure awesome thank you so much and yeah no problem appreciate you and uh yeah well i'm sure we'll i'm sure you and i will talk again soon oh i'm sure yeah (laughs) All right. Have a great day, Jamie. All right, Steph. You too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you. Drop Woods and Waters Project a review on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you listen. Reach out to me. Let me know what you think, what you want to hear more of, uh, what maybe you don't like. I, I want that feedback. I want the podcast to get better and better and continue to bring you great guests. Thank you for being here. Until next time.